everybody. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, welcome to School Psych Podcast. So we've got a lot to cover. I know this is a very hot topic and there's a, a lot of people who are tuning in tonight. Um, we Before we start uh, get started, I was wondering if anybody who wants to can maybe put in the chat box, um, maybe what state you're in uh, and what your plans are, what your district's plans are. So we can have a little bit of a conversation about what, uh, what we're looking like going back into the fall. I'll share that um, I'm going back, I'm in Maryland and I'm going back completely digital um, remotely for uh, at least the first semester. So that was kind of um, a relief and, and also kind of anxiety provoking at the same time. So a um, little bit nervous about what that's gonna look like. Over the summer now, we've been cleaning up some kind of pending evaluations and that's involved us getting dressed up in a face shield and a face mask and going into a, a pretty much empty school and a classroom and working one-on-one -on -one with the kids, kind of quick doing our testing, getting back out again. Um, then the room gets cleaned out um, for, for, we only take one kid per uh, per day in a room. So it's been interesting to see that. Luckily my, my department's pretty organized and pretty with it, but um, I'm not really sure what that's going to turn into um, as we get rolling for the fall. So I'm wondering if anybody who wants to share that in the chat box, um, let us know. We'd like to see where everybody's at. Uh, before I, one more thing too, before we get going, you'll notice that this episode is actually sponsored. This is our first sponsorship. We've had a couple um, people and organizations that have reached out previously to sponsor us and we're grateful for that. I know we've had uh, concerns with our audio quality and we use a free program. And so if we had some sponsorships, you know, we could maybe upgrade and, and be a little bit more consistent with our audio and then our technology. Um, and so, but we've been also very mindful of conflicts of interest and made us a little bit uneasy. Um, so we've done some research, we kind of hemmed and hawed and we all had this discussion um, when um, this as a school staffing company reached out to us, they're called Advanced School Staffing. And so we're, we're trying this for a couple episodes to see how that works out, but we talk with them and we feel pretty comfortable and they answer all, all of our questions about, um, you know, I think Rebecca, you asked, can you also apply to districts while using them for staffing? So if anybody doesn't know, like a staffing company is going to help you to find a job and kind of place you in districts that that might be in, in dire need of school psychologists. I've not used one myself, but I imagine it would be very useful, especially if you're like going into the field for the first time and, and don't have any ties down to a particular state and you want somebody to help you find different uh, different districts, you know, throughout the country or just, you know, focus in on a particular geographic area. I've had, um, I've worked with school uh, speech pathologists who have used that and they've actually received better pay and better benefits than um, those that worked on the state salary scale. And that was in North Carolina to the point that we had speech paths that were quitting working for the district and then being rehired with the staffing company because um, you know there was all sorts of benefits attached. I know it varies uh, place by place, but just wanted to, to throw that out there and say, you know, thanks to Advanced School Staffing and Rebecca's gonna read their little ad. So it's gonna be reading an ad um, at the beginning and at the end. And um, if you guys can click on their link and check out their website, we would appreciate it because they're supporting us and so we want to support them but bleh, all that to say <laughs> i'm going to pass it over to rebecca now and she's going to tell us a little bit about how to participate tonight as well rebecca 
Hi, everybody. So I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut, as some of you know who have been with us before. Um, if you're watching us live, which I'm so excited to see so many of you tuning in live, you can comment in the chat box right alongside your YouTube video. If you don't want to comment because you're feeling nervous about your district or seeing your comment or your question or anything like that, you can feel free to inbox message me on either of the school, uh, the school site pages on Facebook school site to your school psychologist or the school site podcast page. And you can also tweet using the hashtag psyched podcast. I'll be looking for notifications. But as we begin to talk about this really important topic, it's also important to note that as a school psychologist, it's really helpful to have a strong support system in your career. And it's instru instrumental in finding placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That is why we are proud to partner with Advanced School Staffing, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of W-2 employment status along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options. Advanced is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about Advanced School staffing and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit advancedschoolstaffing.com forward slash school psyched exclamation mark. Thank you. And I'm going to pass it off to Eric, who is going to introduce our amazing guests. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. I know we all as educators, school psychologists, and, and even parents who may be watching, um, family members who may be watching, um, we are all concerned about um, what do we do as school psychs in the fall? What do we do as educators? Um, in Connecticut here, uh, both Rebecca and I are in Connecticut. We are slated to open full-time in person. Um, that may change as uh, different data gives us um, cause for different direction. Uh, but right now, that's what we're slated for. So um, lots to think about. And, and depending on what your state is, um, you know, you, you may be, I think we're in the state of confusion, actually, most of us, but uh, you may be open, you may be opening, or you may be like uh, Rachel uh, going virtual for the beginning of the year. So um, lots to consider, but I'm going to introduce our guests. And then uh, I'm actually having a little technical trouble today. I'm on my phone rather than my computer. So you may see me fidgeting and uh, maybe my screen will change as, uh, as uh, I adjust things here. So, um, but hopefully sound quality is okay. So our guests uh, today are co-authors on an article um, that gives us some direction toward w uh, what we can do and whether or not uh, we may, things to consider as we uh, begin testing or think about testing in this age of COVID um, pandemic. So uh, Adam Lockwood is an assistant professor of psychology at Western Kentucky University. He received his school psychology PhD from Northern Arizona University in 2015 and completed a graduate internship with the Louisiana School Psych Internship Consortium and a leadership education in neurodevelopmental and related disabilities. Uh, postdoctoral psychology fellowship at the University of Kansas Medical Center uh, for child health and development. Adam has a passion for working with individuals with autism and their families, as well as teaching undergraduate and graduate students in the areas of psychology and education. He has the honor of collaborating, co collaborating with Native American stakeholders on tribal lands throughout Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Kansas, and California. He is a current research focuses on improving educator training with an emphasis on training educators in evidence-based assessment. Uh, 
Adam is passionate about social justice, especially as it pertains to inclusive education for individuals with disabilities. And along with Adam, we have Ryan Farmer. And Ryan gets the award for being our most frequent recurring guest. <laughs> we love uh, having him on as well. He is an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University, and he received his master's and PhD in school psychology from the University of Memphis. His research interests include investigating assessment processes in school psychology and evidence-based practice. Ryan is also the coordinator of the evidence-based school psychology page. And I am fortunate enough to uh, have begun uh, a little bit of research with the two of them in uh, evidence-based practices as it pertains to school psychology assessment. So as we begin to open up and unfold this next year, I'm hoping we'll continue collecting our data and, uh, and continue those um, uh, research questions that we had talked about. Um, so Ryan and Adam are co-authors along with Ryan McGill, Stefan Dombrowski, Nick Benson, Stephanie Smith-Kellen, Stephen Powell, Christina Pinn, and Terry Stinnett on an article entitled, Conducting Psychoeducational Assessments During the COVID-19 Crisis, The Danger of Good Intentions. So we're excited to speak with them this evening about this topic. And I think along with school reentry, health and safety, as school psychologists, the backlog of assessments and responding to the number of new referrals we're anticipating will be our top priorities when we return, either remotely or in person. So welcome, Ryan and Adam. Um, Maybe we can start off with some of the dangers of good intentions. What, what, uh, what are these dangers of good intentions? Hi, yeah. So first of all, thank you for the very generous introduction and for having me back just so many times. I think that uh, speaks well of your tolerance. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, I think I've been thinking about this, um, this podcast for several days now. And thinking about you know what what it is I, I want to communicate what it is I want to share, and I think I I've, I've kind of settled on I want to start with this this general blanket message here, and that is um, anything we're saying here is our opinion. Obviously, uh, it's it's based on you know some a review of the evidence and where we're at with remote assessments and and so forth. Um, but in the end, you're going to have to make some of these decisions for yourself. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, every, every situation is different. And what you're trying to measure or assess with any instrument varies by situation, right? And so, you know, you have to really carefully consider what is the, the purpose of the assessment and uh, what, are the, what are the risks of going through with it? What are the risks of not going through with it? I think those both have to be balanced. Um, and uh, it's it's not clear how that balance comes out overall. Uh, we just don't have the information to, to be able to say, hey, this is what you should do. So uh, I hope you weren't tuning in tonight hoping to get a, a bullet list of here's what you should do. Um, but I think what Dr. Lockwood, Adam, and I can, can provide is a list of here are some things you can consider as you uh, approach this extremely unclear, extremely, extremely nebulous phase in, in the history of school psychology. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully we can do that. Um, 
Now, uh, the question was, what are the dangers of good intentions? Well, you know, in order to answer that question, we have to talk about what are the intentions to begin with, right? And maybe that's going back too far. Maybe it isn't. But one of the things I, I like to remind people is, you know, when we give a test, it, be it, you know, a, a math fluency test, a cognitive assessment, our goal is to measure some construct. Um, this is really fun, by the way. Can you hear my daughter yelling in the background? I don't know if you can or not. Uh, she apparently is very angry. Um, uh, for those who don't know, I have a four-month-old daughter, uh, and she is um, she has found her pacifier. Okay. Um, so uh, what I was saying is, uh, whenever we give any of these instruments, the, what we what we need to think about is, you know, we're actually trying to measure something about that individual. Um, and I know that when we when we go about doing that. There are a lot of things that can come into play that can make that measurement less uh, less accurate, more accurate, etc. Uh, and I think one of the things I really want to bring to folks' minds right now is that there are a lot of new variables in this situation. Uh, there are a lot of things going on that we haven't had to deal with in the past. Um, uh, Eric just got dropped from the chat, so that's a great great way to seek into. Um, technical difficulties being a, being a part of that, especially for remote assessment. Um, sorry, how could I not capitalize on that, that unique opportunity there? Um, so, so any of these, these sort of new situations, be it, be them technical or, or um, test specific, examiner specific, examinee specific, all of these things factor into how well we can claim, how well we can make a claim about the scores we have in front of us. And, um, you know, it's it's not a. I think I think we wrote. This is not a situation where there is a good choice. You know, this is a situation where we are satisfying between two bad choices, or maybe three bad choices. Right, remote testing, in-person testing, versus um, not testing at all. And so, when we talk about, you know, what are the what are the potentially bad intentions? What are the what are the outcomes um, of this? We're talking about misdiagnosis or misclassification. We're talking about missing kids who otherwise would have been um, identified. We're talking about over-identifying kids because they've been out of school for five, for five months, right? We're talking about misidentifying kids because there were other things going on in the environment that we weren't aware of when we did the testing, and that may have dragged on their scores. There's lots of things that, that can come into play here that we really have to be careful to consider as we move forward. And that was my rant. I will stop talking. <laughs> One thing that, that I, Ryan I add is that it might not be just your choice either. Um, so I'm sure some of you are going to have some input from uh, your district, administrators, lawyers, etc. Um, so and those are people, good people to reach out to. Always consult as well. Um, I like the, I my um, insurance liabilities through the trust, and I find that they provide a lot of guidance, free trainings, um, and you can always call a lawyer there. Um, I hate to be the person to bring up litigious stuff, kind of hairy times. So, sorry. 
So can you, um, so you've written two papers, there's two papers out now, and I think that there was probably a, a scramble to, to look at this stuff, obviously, everything kind of hit at once. And um, so, you know, there's no kind of maybe experts in this particular domain until you guys have now written two papers. So you're, you're, <laughs> you're become our experts. So can you tell us, yeah, um, for some of us that maybe haven't read uh, the papers, like what, what are some of the highlights? Of sure. That? So there are two papers. Uh, the first one is available open access from contemporary school psychology. You should be able to get that and read the full thing. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the, the publisher has kept that uh, open for everyone so far. Um, in that paper, we're really um, reminding folks in, in sort of a brief way of some of the issues we're going to talk about tonight, um, validity, ethics, equity, uh, and so forth. Um, but then what we're really hitting on in that first paper is o uh, the, the OCR has given us more leeway than, than some folks have acknowledged. Um, they've given us some leeway with, with um, deadlines and such. Um, and, and really what we're trying to get folks doing there is, is really thinking about, you know, what do we have to do right now? What is mandatory versus what isn't mandatory? Um, and we do touch on some other issues in that paper, but they're not highlighted. Um, that really, that legal piece is the, the primary highlight of that first paper. And uh, I kind of wish McGill were here to talk more about that. Um, but um, that was that was very much the highlight of that first paper. The second paper, which uh, is in press right now with uh, professional psychology research and practice, but is available as a preprint for everyone to read, um, hits more in a lot more detail on a ton of issues. Um, we, we spend a lot of time talking about construct relevant influences on testing, which construct relevant influences on testing is, is just a really unnecessarily fancy way of saying uh, something I wasn't planning to measure interfered with my measurement. Um, and so you might think about this as I'm trying to measure, um, gosh, I'm trying to measure math fluency and the, uh, the size of the numbers on the page um, made it so that the child wasn't able to read them clearly. And so something as obviously we don't care. Uh, we don't want them to be influenced by the size of the numbers on the page. We want them to be only influenced by the math problem itself. But sometimes, you know, these influences do come into play. And um, when we talk about influences during the pandemic, and this is what I was kind of alluding to earlier, you know, there are a lot of new influences that we, um, you know, we probably don't have a good handle on at this point. Um, uh, you know, and, and what we did is we broke it down into the, the four, and I really would say now, if I could go back and rewrite portions of this paper, five um, areas of, um, of, of potential influence. The first one I would mention is the kid, the kid or, or adolescent themselves, right? They're coming to this situation with several months of experiences uh, that you may be completely unaware of, right? We have no idea if they're experiencing grief. We know I have no idea about the emotional uh, distress they're in. We have no idea how they're responding to what could easily be traumatic experiences, right? And so 
uh, if you, for instance, had had a, a child come into your regular testing room and you sat down to give them the whisk and they said, oh, yeah, we've been isolated for the last five months from the rest of the world. Would you continue testing in that moment? Because I don't think I would. I, I would certainly dig into that. No, we, uh, that's a bit of a silly example because we all know why, right? Everyone's been um, sequestered and quarantined and physical distancing and the whole shebang. Um, but, but these are things that would in normal times give us qualm. They would, they would have us pause and think carefully, huh, will that interfere with their ability to perform on this test? And, and I'm not saying, right, I want to be really careful in this. I don't think Adam is saying this either. We were very careful in both the first and second paper. We're not saying that this, that remote testing or testing in person right now is invalid. We're not saying that. What we're saying is there are a lot more considerations that have to be made before you can determine validity than our typical process, right? And that's really what we hit hard in that, um, in that second paper. Um, Moving on from the examinee, right, it's really easy to think about, well, what if the kid's distressed and, you know, what if they're anxious because of what's been going on? Uh, there was some research that came out uh, regarding anxiety due to um, media coverage of, of the coronavirus, right? And um, because they were experiencing, uh, uh, seeing so much news coverage, right? Well, I mean, I think that's a safe bet for pretty much all of us. Yeah. And so um, it's easy to think about kids in this way, but you have to think about ourselves as well. Right. How attentive are we giving these variables? How attentive are we able to be? Are we going to miss steps because we're distracted with what's going on? Right. And, and it's hard to be reflective on those types of things. But I think this is a time period where we have to be. Um, so that's sort of the examinee and examine our sources of influence. I'm used to dealing with. Sorry, you know, I really, I really love that the, the cameras keep going in and out because my next category is technology. and I'm going to have a ball. All right. So, um, <laughs> uh, um, we're used to dealing with problem behavior during testing, one-on-one uh, -on -one interactions with kids, right? We're used to managing the environment. We're used to setting it up. We have none of those tricks right now. Our, our, our grab bag of behavioral management tricks is severely reduced when we do remote assessment, right? Um, and so it's, it's, something to, uh, it's something to consider as well. Um, technology, obviously, if, if we're doing remote assessment, that's an issue. Uh, we have to have, you know, solid internet connection, solid hardware, et cetera. Uh, and then um, the tests themselves, which I, I'm going to kind of just put a pen in and, and off to the side for a moment. We'll come back to that one. Um, but, yeah, we really have to – oh, in the environment, of course, right? We have no control over the environment that we have to really think about uh, and that we covered uh, in the, the second paper. Uh, I feel like I've been talking for a very long time, so I'm going to pause, see if there's any uh, any questions or whatnot at this point. I have a question, Ryan. I was, uh, you and I were chatting earlier, but I'd love to tease this out more about 
the difference in in the way um, school psychologists and maybe clinical psychologists or even in the ways districts maybe between district and district use the the assessment data and where where private psychologists often make diagnoses which mm-hmm. I think seems really clear to me um, the what like the things that you've said so far how they would impact our ability to make a strong claim like like mm-hmm. a diagnosis but if school psychologists are using assessment and maybe even if we're just thinking about achievement testing to look at um, where they are um, based on norms in terms of academic achievement, can that is that a better use of um, of our testing time? And then, like from that, if we are just then trying to find out where the child is, where the student is, and how we can help them. Um, with academic interventions. Yeah, uh, that's a that's an interesting point. You know, there is a a different level of 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 let's go with intensity uh, between the claims that are made by clinical psychologists versus the claims that are made by school psychologists. Um, but I I actually think those those um, the claims about the difference in intensity is is um, exaggerated. You know, if we think about it, um, if, if you go to a psychologist in a private practice and they say your child has SLD and it doesn't matter how they came to that conclusion, let's just say that's the conclusion they came to. Um, and you disagree with that. You can just literally ignore that report and go to another psychologist. Right. If you get that diagnosis and you agree with it, well, you can get treatment potentially from that person. You can take it to the school and try and get treatment from the school. It may not always work, but you can certainly try. Um, You could go to another um, psychologist to try and get treatment. You could go to a tutoring center to get treatment. So in some ways, I I actually think the, uh, the, the difference is in the other direction. Right. So the claims that we're making typically are going to follow a kid for one to three years. Does that make sense? So when we make a make a classification about a kid, it's going to at least follow them into their triannual evaluation. Uh, We might in some places have some follow up to to track um, some some treatment selection stuff or those kinds of things. But typically we're not going to reevaluate that classification for three years. So unless a parent goes through due process, that's it. There is no um, another uh, school to wander into and ask for a different school psychologist. Um, you can do that, right? You, if you go through that due process, but it's a, it's a much more arduous process than going and finding another clinical psychologist, so long as you're willing to pay for the service. Um, so that's the that's my first thought on that. And so I, w- what I would what I would jump off from from that is I, I don't think we should sell ourselves short. Right. I, I don't think we should sell the decisions we're making as anything less than life altering for these kids. Um, they certainly can be and are. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I would I would start there um, where I would go next. Oh, gosh, it's such a hard decision to make. Um, I don't know. Did I, did I answer your question, Rebecca? Is there something I need to kind of fill in there? You, no, you did. You answered it. I, I think that I'm just really thinking about the pressure that 
school psychs are under yeah. um, often for making sure kids are okay and and you know teachers want to know what can we do and how are the kids doing and where did they leave off last year and so it it seems to me like there's hope maybe in some of the achievement but maybe i'm thinking of it um maybe we should actually be looking into sort of tier one kinds of assessment and cbms just to you know and maybe that remotely can be yeah. more helpful and more fair yeah and you know Adam is certainly more expert on, on achievement testing than I am, um, but I'll, just sort of off the cuff, I'm thinking, um, you know, it, it, it might seem that the, the claims to be made are less intense with an achievement test, um, right? And, and that's certainly a valid statement to make, but I think the error we have in our achievement test is actually larger than in our cognitive tests right now, right? So think about the the, well, so let's say we're, we're doing this remotely, right? There are so many subtests from our, our common um, achievement test that we simply can't administer typically. So we, there, there's even more alteration, even more, even more non-standardized administration than we have to engage in there. On top of that, you know, just thinking about the, the basic assumptions of a cognitive test versus an achievement test, right? We erroneously, I think, but we tend to say that cognitive ability is relatively stable over time, right? And it, it, it is more stable over time than achievement is. And I think we can all agree on that. But we just had five months out of school. So inherently, I think those achievement tests are, are maybe more, I think some of the assumptions underneath those are, are more in danger in some ways than cognitive tests are. And also, I would say, um, I have not seen any and I, if I'm incorrect on this, someone please correct me. I've not seen any equivalency studies for achievement tests, only cognitive tests for kids, at least. I've been looking at um, how can I incorporate um, CBA and CBM and whatnot. And I, I've put together, you know, so looking at reading and whatnot, looking at your five areas and there's lots as far as reading fluency and things that can definitely, I feel would lend themselves better to remote assessment than, you know, a standardized whisker or, or something of that manner. So I've been looking there, but even, you know, I'm still, I kind of at a loss with the eligibility component and what my district's going to do with that and what they're going to allow, and what they're not going to allow. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I would go instead of spending so much time, I guess, on a standardized achievement test, maybe doing CBA um, things, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's just, I, I don't think we can speak to it very much. You know, there's, there's no empirical data to say one way or the other here. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at comments. We've got lots of people. That's probably the non-answer answer you were looking for. <laughs> um, I saw one, a lot of good comments, a lot of good questions and, and uh, comments on the page. Um, and uh, I think it was John Listino mentioning uh, testing versus assessment. You know, what are we really doing? Are we just testing or are we doing an assessment? And then I guess that would beg the question, what are we looking for? What kinds of data? Um, what kinds of information? Yeah, yeah, and and Adam, I feel like I'm I'm just doing all the talking here. Feel please please cut me off or or yell at me something. It doesn't really matter. Um, 
Yeah, I agree. I think it really depends on, on you know, the, the, the question you're trying to answer up front, you know, and I, that's actually where we started. Uh, if any of you have seen the um, questions to ask before remote testing infographic that we produced, um, gosh, a couple of months ago now, the very first one is, are these data essential? And that's really asking, you know, do we even need to do this right now? Is this really what's important for this kid in this moment? Um, I mean, I have my opinions on that. My opinion is, is basically no, I don't really think it is the important thing to do right now. I think we should, you know, have this time to focus on social emotional health and, and, you know, acknowledging that there's probably going to be some, um, some, some uh, relapse or, or, or remediation necessary for most kids um, who are coming back to a school setting after whatever the spring happened to have been in your area. Um, and I, I just, uh, yeah, I, I agree. You know, we, we don't do enough of that focus on the referral question. Um, and so that's absolutely where my heart is. And, and I think you know that, Eric. Can I can I take that even a step back? Then uh, what's the referral question is, why are we doing this? And I think it was Corey that, that said something like, basic, basically, it's because um, for compliance or something, which... I get compliance is an issue, um, but and I feel for people that are in that, that position of I have to do this because the district wants to. But yeah, I mean, like at this point, it's like a lot of this assessment, especially if it's just a triennial, there's much better things that, that you all could be doing with your time that we could be doing with our time. Um, we have students who, every student in school is probably going to need. Um, some, some interventions. Teachers are going to need help with um, interventions, helping kids to practice safe behavior, social distance, et cetera. Um, and so if you, if it were me and there's any way around testing right now, I wouldn't do it. And I'll add to that. I've been going to, I've been attending a lot of webinars through the trust uh, for neuropsychs. And basically what they've said is don't do neuropsychological testing right now. Just don't do it, was what the lawyers were saying. And basically what we do is pretty similar to neuropsych. It's high stakes, a lot of the same testing, a lot of the same assessments are given. And so if that's their advice to people who are making high stakes decisions, high stakes decisions in a clinical setting, it follows that that's probably true of us too. If you can avoid it, I would avoid it right now. That makes a lot of sense. And but... It is, it is for sure hard because, you know, we're, we have bosses and um, yeah, so it would be a lot simpler if we were in private practice, although not so much too, because I follow some of the private practice Facebook groups and whatnot. And um, where I'm home, you know, working remotely kind of, and, and they have to, they have to get income, you know, if they don't test, they get no income. And so they're in, we're in this position when everything closed down that, how, how am I going to change so I can do this? Because I need, I need to put food on the table. So there was kind of a big scramble of let's buy plexiglass. Let's do this. Let's change our office. Let's get air filters. And they're more flexible than we are. You know, I can't just um, change. I've got my little clothes that's tiny and has no windows. Um, and so, you know, I, I work with with what I have. But at the same time, when we were not testing um, earlier, we only started kind of bringing kids in over the summer. Um, parents were getting annoyed because they could go over to so-and-so private psych 
and get a remote assessment. And why aren't you doing a remote assessment? Like, and so it kind of makes us look a little bit bad that we're not doing this, although we know why we're not doing this because there's all these concerns, but um, it, it makes it, we're kind of in the middle of things for sure. And it stinks. <laughs> well, I think what Ryan said earlier is just absolutely true. It's the best, worst decision. There's, there's, no, there's no good way to go about this right now. So my question is, um, what, what does the research tell us about this? You know, we have some psychologists that are, as we're saying, you know, out of necessity are finding ways to do some kinds of assessment. And um, so what, uh, and we do have, I see, I saw Karen's comment too. Um, we do have neuropsychologists who are testing remotely. What, what uh, Adam and Ryan does the research tell us right now about um, the standardization of these tests and how we're measuring and construct irrelevant variants? Um, yeah, so this favorite. is actually one of the things that that started us down the path um, that we went on um, is trying to figure out well, what does the research say because the majority of us who who write who wrote these two papers um, teach cognitive assessment. Uh, that was our responsibility. And so we wanted to be able to communicate to our students in class, hey, here are the pros and the cons. And as we as we dug into it, we found some interesting uh, things. Um, so first of all, there is a lot. So the, the comment, the neuropsychologists are doing more remote assessment than we are. And that's probably accurate. And if you look into the literature, what you'll find is that there's a lot more research on equivalency for neuropsych measures. They've, um, they've spent a lot more time. There are meta-analyses showing minimal difference. Uh, they, they're there, right? But keep in mind, they're there with doing a remote assessment that is remote in the sense that that person's probably in another clinic somewhere. They're probably in a hospital setting. Uh, they may be in a, a legal um, setting. Um, very, and to the best of my knowledge, even looking at their research literature, there isn't any research literature where people are testing the accuracy of these tests when the person is sitting at home on their computer. Uh, so that's that's one that's one factor that I think we really need to consider is, well, sure, remote the the digital versus paper they can be equivalent, right? And remote versus in the same room they can be equivalent. But how about in person where you have control of the environment versus remote where you don't, right? And so this is a good opportunity to take to just take a, a very brief stroll uh, through that literature and talk a little bit about it um, for kids and adolescents. Right. So, as I said, for adults in the neuropsych world, there's actually a good amount of, of literature out there. Um, but for kids, this is a largely untouched area. Now, what you're what you're probably going to see floating around are a couple of equivalent studies for the WISC, um, the RIOS2, the WJ, um, a couple of others are out there as well. Uh, most of these are, are what's called between-person equivalency designs. Now, what that really means is they get a bunch of kids and they randomize whether they get the test in person or they get the test remotely. And remotely in, in these studies typically means another room in the clinic. Right. So it's not they're sitting at home in their PJs and their brothers running around in the background. It's they're sitting in a nice, quiet room, often with a facilitator. 
right? So they have someone there to hand them the stimulus book when they need it. They have someone there to help troubleshoot the computer and tech issues. Um, they own the computer. They own the Wi-Fi. And so there's uh, there's a lot of a lot of issues there. In some ways, uh, effectively, what what they're doing is these um, these proof of concept studies. Now, proof of concept studies are absolutely crucial, and I don't want it to sound in any way like I'm knocking the folks who are doing these studies because they're they've done some really great work. And uh, anyone who's looked into them knows that uh, Dr. Wright uh, has done um, far and away the majority of them. Uh, I'm not knocking what he's done or what the others have done in this. Um, in this research area, certainly not. Uh, but what they've established is a proof of concept. They haven't established clinical validity. Um, now I'm really careful here because, you know, let's let's take take, let's take a step back. I mentioned that these were between group um, designs. Now between group designs, what we're typically asking in these designs is, does the mean is the average of the remote group largely equivalent to or the same as the average from the in-person group? That's the question we ask when we do this kind of study. And that's a really important question to ask. That does not tell me that if I give Adam, that I can give Adam either a remote test or an in-person test and get the same score. That's a very different question. That requires a different type of design entirely. Now, again, the studies that have been done, wonderful proof of concept, not where we need to be for clinical relevance. Right. And if you go back and look at some of the meta-analyses from the adult neuropsych literature, one of the very first things um, I'm thinking of Brearley at all, 2017, um, one of the things that they will tell you up front is within group design is the absolute best design for equivalency studies. So we have none of those for kids or adolescents. Zero. Um, and so that's a that's a really big problem. For me. Now, that does, does that mean that these tests are inherently unreliable? No. Does it mean that they're inherently invalid? No. It doesn't mean those things. Does it mean that they're in no way useful? No. But I think it was, uh, in fact, it was, it was Richard McFall back in 1990, 1991. He argued having no evidence that something is bad doesn't mean that it's good. Right. So just because you have a, a therapy or a treatment and in your head, it sounds wonderful. But if you have no support in either direction, that means you still shouldn't do it. Right. It it, it doesn't mean that we have the luxury of saying, oh, this is experimental. Well, he later went on to say, you know what? Maybe we do have that luxury. Maybe we do have the luxury of saying this is experimental. But guess what? Clients have the right to informed consent. And that is in the school, that's in private practice, that doesn't matter where we are. So we need to be saying, you know what? I don't know what the reliability and validity of these tests are. They're largely experimental. Do you want to proceed? I think we should be working that into our informed consents right now because that's where we are with the science of this. And I will drop my pen and, and stop talking. Now. That, was, that was a pen drop moment when I was like, yeah, informed consent. I didn't even kind of think about that. I mean, um, that parents need to know that we don't necessarily know what we're doing or that um, <laughs> that any of these scores that we get back, if they're going to be accurate or not. Um, and so your that, report better reflect it as well. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Everything needs to be cautioned <laughs> for sure. So we had some comments about, you know, who would anybody feel comfortable identifying ID like this? And I think that's the big one. I feel like there's kind of ways around LD because there's so many different models for LD. And I feel like there's ways. Redefine um, LD again. It'll be fun. <laughs> I know. Perfect time to uh, <laughs> do that. But yeah, ID hinges on the adaptives and the cognitive. So you need to be you need to be pretty sure of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, there are ways, uh, I think to, um, there are ways to, to do that, but, you know, I ask, and one of the questions I would ask here is, okay, these are essential data. Is this a decision you need to know the answer to in the next three to six months? Is it? And, and, you know, right. There could be situations where it is absolutely necessary. Right. I was speaking with um, Dr. Oganes, um, and she was saying that, you know, in 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 uh, deportation cases, they need to do testing for developmental delay, developmental disability and intellectual disability right up front, because that is a big piece of the data they have to bring to the court system. And the court system isn't delaying these cases because of the pandemic. Now, that's a that's I mean, to me, that is every ethical red flag in the book, but let's not go political. Um, my point here is there are situations where giving these tests and getting more erroneous data than usual is the lesser of two evils, right? But I, I, I question whether that's typically the case. That's a good point. And I think you know, the bottom line when we assess is to provide interventions for children that they wouldn't otherwise have access to, right? That um, providing that kind of support and intervention that they're entitled to based on a disability and that they are um, required to have in order to have access to the curriculum. What if our response to the pandemic as school districts is to provide as much intervention as possible and not push the envelope for catch up? <laughs> I don't know, hypothetically speaking, um, then we're providing intervention, right? And that that's really what we're doing this for in the first place. I've often wondered if I've had a thought of, you know, maybe we just need to have, you know, we have, a, we have the developmental delay category, which is kind of a, they, you know, there's something going on and they need help and maybe it'll resolve itself or maybe it'll switch to another category. I feel like we need a COVID category of a, a temporary, like you can have an IP now, we recognize that you're struggling, like let's give you whatever services we can feasibly give you and we'll get around to fully assessing you when we are able to do that. I don't, I don't know if it's a mess. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is going to be one of those moments where at least I defer and say, you know, I can't, I, I can't even begin to provide an answer on that. You're going to have to, I would say folks have to talk with their district um, supervision, their district um, uh, administration. And, uh, and I would add legal to that. A lot of good questions and conversation. So I think we're all scanning. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I, I like Emily's question. Um, Rachel, you, you showed Emily's question about what role does test security play into this conversation and will this impact how and when measures are updated? Will this interfere with the Flynn effect? 
you know that it, if I guess in the right uh, literature, he didn't have to worry about that if they were all kind of in a controlled environment that way. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I, I, I could sit here and speculate, but I, I, I genuinely don't know. Um, that, that'll be interesting to see if and how that washes out. Intellectual property is still intellectual property. There was a, a discussion about this on one of the trusts um, webinars. Um, that would be a question you'd have to ask the publishers. Some of them are providing that, so I'm sure when, uh, some of them are providing stuff that you can print out and use during these times. Mm -hmm. But if they're not providing that for you, I'd be really cautious about making my own copies and, and letting those get outside of my hands. Yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of, we haven't talked about this, but, you know, there's something fishy about doing remote assessment as school psychologists as well from a completely legal angle. Um, we are given the authority we have to do the response to the roles, we, to carry out the roles we have by the Ed Department. But remote, remote telepsychology, teleassessment, that's all uh, under the uh, auspices of state psychology boards. So do we really have the legal authority to engage in remote services? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we posed that question in, in the first of the two papers, but I don't, I don't know that there is an answer to that. Um, I haven't seen any, any statements to that effect. Um, there's, there's what's called Good Samaritan um, leeway that basically permits us to engage in sort of crisis response, uh, but it's unclear what, what um, what falls into that category and, and what the limits of that category are. And so that's something also to consider and, and maybe to, again, I, I hate to just keep going back to this point, but bring up with district legal, uh, maybe consult with your state site board, even if you're not um, licensed through them, it would be interesting to see their perspectives. This might be pushing it a little, but if someone were going to do some remote testing, but with a proctor, with sort of train a proctor that was at home, an adult, what might we want that proctor to do? And that's going to be entirely test specific, right? So if they're, if they're given the whisk, then they need to know about coding and symbol search and where to point. Right. And uh, if they're, if they're doing, um, the Wilcock Johnson, then maybe they're flipping pages. If they're doing an achievement test and maybe they're making sure the right stimuli with the right item up is shown to the student at the right time. And, you know, it's really going to depend um, on, on the test that you're giving, you know, and, and I think that right there, right, is, is something that we weren't tra typically trained to do, right? We weren't trained to teach someone else to do this. And we sure as heck weren't trained to teach them to do it over Zoom right, or whatever service you're using. Uh, and so that in and of itself um, is an interesting uh, issue. And then, of course, this brings back the uh, intellectual copyright issue, right? We don't know to what extent that's permitted, what extent it's not permitted. Um, and uh, one of our, a uh, couple of our brilliant uh, co-authors, um, Dr. McLean, Dr. Harris uh, brought up, you know, when you're, when you're, even if you can work with a facilitator or a proctor, um, you know, what if that facilitator or proctor uh, doesn't speak English or isn't able to communicate in the same language? Um, 
what if you're so effectively you're bringing in a, a third and maybe even fourth person with a, with an interpreter, right? Um, and this, of course, goes back to informed consent as well, because now you have to have um, remote testing or COVID-based testing uh, in, included in that in, in both languages. And that can be really challenging, uh, especially given the, uh, the stretch or resources we're all experiencing. And as soon as someone else walks in the room for most of these tests, standardization is out the window. Um, so we're back kind of at the same thing. Well, we're, we're going to report these scores. You have this huge caveat in your report that uh, I would just be worried. It's kind of a damn if you do, damn if you don't. If you don't do it, parents are gonna, could possibly say, hey, you didn't test my kid. And if, you, if they don't like your results, they could say, well, you did the, you, your report here says that your, your results are garbage. Um, so it's a really sticky situation to be in. One thing that I don't think was brought up that I've been thinking about a lot is norms. What norms can we use right now? Okay. If we're going to start, if we're going to do it by the grade that the child's in right now, they haven't had instruction for five months. Um, and so do we use the norms from five months ago? And they've probably forgotten stuff since five months ago. So can we use, what norms will we even use is a question that I don't have an answer for. But that's for that's everything you know. We based it on norms from when things weren't crazy. I um, mean that also goes for uh, ED evals, which are lar largely based on checklists, right? And so if you're asking questions about is a is a child anxious? Well, yeah, most people are more anxious right now than they normally would be. So if you're comparing them to children, you know, 2010, whenever the last whenever they're norming this stuff, that's all out the window. And then you got to think about the raters. The ratings we're giving are affected by their own mood states, their own affective states, right? So th there's this, everywhere you look are, are just red flags. Um, and that concerns me too. Yeah, when, I, when we're even outside of cognitive evaluations and that whole can of worms, when I'm doing an autism evaluation or an ED evaluation or an OHI, like I'm relying heavily on observations in the classroom. I'm seeing their social interactions. I'm seeing if there's aggressive behaviors. Um, you know, I'm relying on the teacher's input and the data that we're collecting there. And if so, I'm totally remote. I, how am I going to get a rating scale from a teacher who sees the kid, you know, uh, for half an hour a day in a, in a Zoom session? Or, you know, how does that how does that work? And so I'm I, I have no idea how I'm going to do autism evaluations or ED evals or anything like that with any type of certainty. And I want to tell parents this is this is my opinion. This is what I think. But how can I even formulate an opinion? <laughs> Partly your, your accuracy or diagnostic accuracy is going to be influenced by how significant the signs and symptoms are. So if you have that kid that, and I did telehealth assessments of autism in my postdoc, and I would literally have kids walk into the room on their tippy toes, flapping their arms and, and vocalizing, right? So in that case, you can be pretty confident, but it's the kids that are in between that are going to be tough to, to, to assess. I will say that for autism, um, Vanderbilt has some really good resources. Um, UCLA does too, and they're both free. And I can provide those uh, at the end if you'd like. Uh, the University of Washington has um, free weekly meetings for clinicians, and you can be a school psychologist as well, where they, they're just getting together and they're sharing resources and talking about ways to, to 
classify or diagnose um, in these times. So if you were to use something like the ADOS, for example, if you use a mask, you 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 violated standardization. You 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 cannot give the ADOS on with a mask. Um, and so some of the folks that I worked with at uh, University of Kansas Medical Center reached out. And said, "What are you guys doing?" They're like, "Well, first we're doing a we're doing over telehealth, and then if we need to bring someone back in again." They do bug in the ear um, to have parents do some of the um, presses uh, for, for the ADOS. Um, again, it's not standardized, um, and it's kind of the best of the worst, but those are some, some options. So I'd be happy to share those links if, if you're interested. For sure. And that goes back to the kind of informed consent too. And I kind of feel weird, like, you know, okay, I can do an autism evaluation, but unless they're like super, super on the spectrum, I might not have an answer for you. Like it's such an awkward kind of a situation. I'm just thinking about sitting at my IEP team meetings, deciding to test or not to test and me saying, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be helpful or not. <laughs> think about repetitive behaviors. I mean, we're having our kids wash their hands all the time. Think about some of the social, uh, some of the social interactive stuff, I mean, they're not getting good practice in that stuff. So like things could look very much like autism that are just anxiety and and the fact that we're we're encouraging social distancing and and, and hand washing and all sorts of different behavior. My children now they see people coming and they kind of they move to the side because they know I'm like, well, you know, six feet apart, six feet apart. So they see people and they skitter off. And I I feel the urge to be like, they're not being rude. They're just <laughs> I've told them that this is what you need to do right now. But um, it's difficult. Um, I know that we're getting close uh, to wrapping up on time. So anybody who's watching and has some questions and we'll try and um, you know, if we miss them, I know there's a lot um, repost them again and we'll try and get them in. Um, I had another thought on something, but I've lost my thoughts. So somebody else needs to talk while I get that thought back. <laughs> I did have a question though. <laughs> oh, okay. I got it. <laughs> Can you talk about, um, you mentioned some of the platforms and whatnot. The ones that I'm most familiar are, you know, people that people are using one, the WISC, and, um, you know, somebody in the chat mentioned, you know, are we mailing blocks? I've heard of people um, kind of substituting the block design for something else to still get um, their scores. I've heard of people mailing booklets of coding and symbol search that, you know, parents aren't supposed to open until you're on camera. So you know that they're not peeking ahead of time and opening it up and instructing them that way. Because everything else on the WISC, um, you don't necessarily, you don't need the manipulatives if you're doing it kind of remotely with the iPad scenario. Um, and then I know that the RIAS is coming out with a remote, totally remote online kind of platform and we haven't been able to see that yet. I've also heard about other kind of middlemen companies um, that are either providing school psychologists to give remote assessments, um, I'm thinking of presence learning, um, or who are providing a platform which will integrate with, you know, you give the parent a laptop and it, it connects and kind of like the iPad type of thing. What else is out there where if either people in the chat, are you, are there other options that people are using or do either of you know of what else is going on? What are people doing? Yeah, so presence learning is the one that I believe was used with most of the studies, not all of them, but but several of them. Um, 
It's a good question, and uh, you know, I, 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 it's you, you'll find some conflicting, um, some conflicting opinions on this. Um, I think Dr. Wright wrote as part of his APA services blog on on teleassessment with um, standardized tests that you want to use the the instrument or the platform that was used with the equivalency studies. Um, okay. Um, and then uh, Dr. Reynolds on uh, the Testing Psychologist blog, he said that it didn't matter. You use Zoom, you use WebEx, you use Skype, you use whatever you have at your hand. Uh, he may not have said Skype now that I think back on it. Uh, he definitely said Zoom and WebEx are suggested. Uh, so, so any of the ones that have uh, HIPAA compliance, I suppose. Um, so it, it, the, the advice clearly varies pretty substantially here from uh, you use this one thing and nothing else to whatever's fine. Um, and so I, I don't, again, I don't think we have a good answer here, right? It may not matter as long as um, the, the service you're using has some degree of, of guarantee of confidentiality, right? Um, it has to have some degree of, um, you have, for most of these tests, you have to have the ability to share the screen. Uh, you have to have the ability to have multiple screens up so you can observe the student and what they're doing. You have to have the ability to um, give control of the mouse to the student, I think. Uh, and I could be incorrect here. Please correct me if I am. But I think that some of the uh, digital administration platforms uh, like Q Interactive and so forth uh, allow the student to take control of the mouse and click on the screen uh, to make their selections uh, for the different subtests. Um, there was a question about mailing blocks. Yeah, I really strongly recommend don't do that um, for so many reasons. Um, gosh, so many reasons. The last thing we need is our WISC blocks going through USPS right now. They're busy enough, folks. Um, um, I'm sure they're expensive when you have to replace them. Uh, you know, I, can, I, I, I can only imagine. Um, now, what I will say is Pearson um, has, has released what's called the non-motor full-scale score. Uh, which is a completely separate score that you can get a site that, that functions as an FSIQ equivalent. Um, and I believe it's part of Q Interactive, but it's part of the materials they've made available for free right now. Um, now, I, what I'll say about that is block design is a multiple choice test using that version. Uh, and so there's no need for manipulatives. Um, there are, I believe there are substitutes for a couple of other tests as well, but my memory is, is shoddy at best. Um, now that what what's to be said there is, I've, I've seen no studies saying that those are actually equivalent things. I have no idea if the non-motor full-scale score is actually measuring general intelligence the way the FSIQ is. I don't know if you would get a similar score with the FSIQ as you would with the non-motor FFS, right? And, and that becomes an issue, right, when you're using the same cut points. If we are going to say that 70 is our criteria or 75 in some places, whatever it may be, but then we have two scores that effectively give you some variance of five points, well, that's a big deal. That's a big difference. And we need to take that into consideration when we use them. But we don't have those data yet. All right. Um, I, one other point too, I know that I've heard uh, both of you say kind of that only, only be doing this if you really need the data, you know, looking at a referral question, what are we trying to answer? What are we trying to accomplish? And we've had 
um, you know, a mixture of guests on the podcast, some that are swear by you kind of need an IQ test to understand a child and to help a child. And then others that say that, you know, the IQ test really doesn't give us any useful functional information and predict things um, like we would hope. And so you really shouldn't be doing it unless you absolutely need to. In, for example, the case of ID um, would be the one that comes to mind. Um, I kind of practice where I'm, I only give the IQ when I feel like I really, really need to give the IQ. It's not kind of a part of my standard battery, which kind of helped me out a lot when, um, when closures happened. And luckily I didn't have, you know, 10 kids that I needed to somehow figure out what I'm going to do with, you know, I only had, um, you know, two cases where um, a team had requested an IQ and that we were going to do that. Um, but yeah, so is that, is that kind of accurate? The, the uh, good summary of as far as maybe it's best to not do an IQ unless you really need to do an yeah. IQ. In general, I would say avoid standardized tests if you can. Um, but really, really sit and think critically and carefully about what it is you want to know about that kid. You know, I, I hear the argument, we need an IQ to understand, or we need a cognitive test to understand uh, this, this kid. Uh, and, and I just don't buy that, right? I mean, I can, I can get a good understanding of, of, of where a student is struggling by looking at their, by doing a record review, by maybe giving them some CBMs or giving them an academic achievement test, right? So I just, I just don't buy that wholesale. Um, I think there are some times when it is useful, but I, I just don't know that it is the quintessential test of school psychology. Um, what's funny is you can go back as far as the early 1900s in the literature, and it's talking about how we're married to the IQ test. And it, to, to some point, we need to start asking, are we giving this because we need to give it for this kid, or are we giving this because we need to give it because we're school psychologists? Right. And I think that's a, that's a question that is hard to ask. It's hard to ask that question because it it feels like there's a little bit of a conflict of interest. It feels like by asking that question, we're putting our own careers at stake. Right. It feels like we're putting our, our identity at stake when we ask that question. But I, I think that for our, our profession to move forward, we need to ask that question. Um, and it's it's not as true for other standardized tests. But I do think. Um, I think it has to be there. Uh, if it's okay with you, I, there was a, a, a piece I kind of wanted to end on um, mm -hmm. from um, Weimer, who's a, is an excellent um, researcher in assessment. And he, he published this in 1989, talking about the ethics of assessment. And he said, you know, um, ethical assessment is knowing what your test can do and acting accordingly. Well, folks, we don't know what our tests can do right now. So act accordingly. Very true. Um, all right. Um, I know that we're going to kind of wrap up and uh, thank you everybody for participating and thank you to both of you for coming and, and sharing your expertise on this muddy, messy topic. We have um, another podcast that our next one is scheduled with um, Dr. Vander Hayden and she's going to talk about how to kind of hit the ground running and figure out where we need to help kids with with 
you know, universal screeners and academics and how we figure out who needs the help immediately and how to do that. So I think that that will be a really um, good episode as well to get us kind of pumped up and um, ready to face whatever we're going to be facing. I also want to mention um, in the description on the YouTube there, um, we have the links to both of the papers that were referenced tonight. We also um, have, I put in, I made this funny little um, decision tree that is included there. If you guys want to check it out, it's called something along the lines of, so you want to give a cognitive during a pandemic. And so you click through why you're giving a cognitive and it's, it's kind of amusing. I had a lot of fun making it. It's I'm awesome. Really it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so check that out if you'd like to. Um, but I was going to turn it over to Eric. I think you were going to close us out, right? Yes. Thank you. Um, I know, I don't think we really mentioned it, but last week was our NASP advocacy week. And as we think about heading back into our schools, either remotely or in person, um, we all know the needs that we have um, as far as uh, social and emotional needs. We know that so many students, families, and teachers are going to be needing support. And so that really um, leads to us needing to have more school psychologists in the schools, right? Uh, more school psychologists doing um, support, lowering our numbers of student to uh, staff ratio. And so our sponsor is one way that we can address that, right? Having uh, an agency that is placing school psychologists and um, sort of, I, I think my brother uh, calls this headhunting in the corporate world, uh, I guess, you know, someone who matches the job with the personnel. So um, think of this as, as a way uh, our or this organization is matching school psychologists to the needs uh, of school districts. So um, before we go, I just want to thank both of our guests uh, for their input and great discussion. Thank our audience, our listeners for wonderful school psychs and educators for their input and questions. And again, thank our sponsor, Advanced School Staffing, for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. As the leader in school staffing nationwide, they genuinely care. the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that they demonstrate with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about advanced school staffing and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit advancedschoolstaffing.com slash school psyched. So thank you all. Great discussion. Great input. Thank you, our guests. And... Um, be safe, wash your hands, stay six feet apart. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Thank you, Ryan and Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan and Adam. <laughs>